0: This is Frontierland with Dr. Dean Allen. A maverick is defined as an unorthodox or independent minded person, someone who is prepared to take risks. Certainly John Varty is someone who fits this profile. I caught up with the legendary South African wildlife filmmaker and conservationist on a visit to Founders Lodge here in the Eastern Cape. Listen here on Frontierland as we discuss his colourful life and his visions for the future. It certainly makes for a fascinating episode. Enjoy. Well John, what a pleasure to actually meet you. I've heard a lot about you and of course you've had an incredible journey. Conservationist, um, musician, activist filmmaker, of course, and part owner of some of South Africa's most influential game reserves. Before we go any further, I want to ask, when did you develop your passion for wildlife, and
1: big cats in particular? Well, I grew up in a hunting environment. Uh, My grandfather had been a hunter, my father was a hunter. And so for the first uh, 18 years of my life, uh, we pursued cats, but not to conserve them, but to hunt them. Having said that, there was a very high standard of ethics and only males could be shot and everything was hunted on foot. But that was the environment I grew up in. And and then my father died very young. He was 55 years old. And at that time, Malamala had started ecotourism. And we, we, by necessity, had to earn some income. So we started our first eco-tour safaris and we charged the people three rands a day. <laughs> and then we went to eight rands a day. And then it's just grown from there. And today Londolozi's won the best game reserve in the world
0: four times. That's incredible. And it was founded as a game reserve in 1973, which is quite some heritage, isn't it?
1: it my, fa- my grandfather went there in 1926. Yeah. And I went there in 1973 to start ecotourism, yes. With your brother Dave? My brother came later. Okay. Yeah, I was there the first couple of years. Uh, he was still at university and he had to go to the army. So he came about three or four years later.
0: So many people listening to this would have heard of the famous Marla Mala Game Reserve, and that was founded, I believe, in 1965. And they kind of, would you say they were the pioneers in wildlife tourism in this country in terms of the private sector?
1: They were were certainly the pioneers, um, but if they um, invented it, Londalozzi perfected it. We got into all sorts of things like manipulating the habitat. Uh, The area was very scrub encroached. Um, We got an ecologist called Dr. Ken Tinley, and he showed me... um, how to manipulate the habitat to make it more productive, to restore the seep lines, to combat the erosion, and we became became much more diverse, opened up the land for cheetah, wild dogs, all those running predators. But probably the the most important thing that Tinley taught me was that I had to share the wildlife with the surrounding communities to survive. Otherwise I would just be overrun the the poor people eventually would attack the, the rich people. And, and that's probably what Lonelosi did better than anybody. We invested rural
0: people in wild animals. I'm involved in uh, the Community Conservation Fund of Africa that was set up um, as part of the mantis uh, collection, Adrian Gardner's concern in terms of building places like uh, NURC Game Reserve on the edge of Port Elizabeth and that's the mantra that he talks about, this engagement with community and it clearly came from you guys in those early days.
1: It's essential, Um, you know, you've got two scenarios, you can either be patrolling your park in a military-style operation, trying to catch the poachers, you're killing poachers, they killing rhino, they trading in rhino horn, it's illegal, it's a war, it's gonna take a lot of time, a lot of resources to combat the, that poaching. Or you can get to the communities and create jobs. For example, Lon Losey employs 260 people, they feed a thousand people a day, and they've got five schools out there educating their kids, um, and that's the way you invest people. Um, show them the the, the wealth, and sh- give them the opportunities to to better themselves through wildlife. We've got, of course, the Ad- the the Addo um,
0: National Park down here in the Eastern Cape, but you border probably the most famous national park in South Africa, the Kruger Park. What is the interaction between a state park like Kruger and the private reserves that border it?
1: Well to give you some idea, um, we had a conference, it must be, must be 15 years ago, and the, the, the title of that conference was Parks and Neighbours, and I read a paper and I basically said what I've just told you. The key going forward is to invest in those communities, get them to show them the value of wild animals, that a leopard alive is much better than a leopard dead. And the guy who read the paper for the national parks said his responsibility starts at the boundary of Kruger Park. So he's not concerned with what's happening outside the Kruger Park. So it was two totally different philosophies. But I would say today, the national parks is very, very concerned uh, about what's happening on the outside. Um, and the Kruger Park are the biggest employers in our area. So uh, the wheel has turned in that direction. And I think Lon Losey was probably at the front of that, of that evolutionary you know, understanding that you cannot run a park in Africa today with big icon animals, unless you have the support of those
0: communities. Yeah, that's no, that's key. Another reserve you co-own is Tiger Canyon in the Free State, and I had the privilege of visiting there recently. And we had Rodney and Laura Drew, who manage the reserve, of course, here on an episode of Frontierland recently. Um, explain, explain your inspiration behind Tiger Canyon because it is quite a unique project.
1: Yeah, Tiger Canyon. Um, when I visited India. Uh, I went there a couple of times. I was very disappointed. Um, I didn't see many tigers. And when I did see them, there were some Suzuki Jeeps buzzing around. And it really wasn't very professional at all. And I interviewed quite a few of the Project Tiger guys. And they were very... uh, They were not... um, (laughs) very very how should I put it very unenlightened uh, very misinformed and their story which they all said uh, I interviewed four or five of them they all said the same thing there's nothing wrong with the tiger what are you guys worrying about just stay in South Africa we've got the tiger under control but I had formed a partnership with a couple of Indian filmmakers, and they're saying, "No, no, 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 this tiger is is declining rapidly." And so I started what's called an ex situ conservation project, which is basically a fancy name for trying to save an animal where. It, where it can't be saved. Its origins on Asia, but the Asians don't have the ability to save it. So you save it elsewhere. Once you've bred it up and you've got numbers, you can take it back to where it came from. And, and that's what I did. And I started and I did tiger conservation for 18 years. Now, those were sheep farms. Those were marginal sheep farms that I bought up. I ended up buying 27 sheep farms. Um, this is in the Philippolis region of the Free State. Yeah, it? yeah, it's in the Free State, up against the Fyndekluif Lake, which is virtually in the middle of South Africa. Very rugged country, um, and uh, but very diverse. You had the aquatic habitat, then you had these rolling hills, which was rugged, then you had these deep gorges, which was good for. tigers and then you had these open uh, grasslands which are more suited to cheetah and to lion. So it was very, very diverse and uh, the same principles that I had at Long I applied to to tiger canyons and I ran it for 18 years but it was basically personality driven. People came uh, that knew me, friends of mine, um, a lot of lousy people came there, and we did some incredible things, and swimming with young tigers in the lakes, and uh, we did a, we did a lot of a lot of unconventional things, but incredible safaris, and then just interacting with the tiger. And my first two tigers came from a zoo, and then I bred my own tigers. Then Julie abandoned a litter, which I hand raised, and just the. The ability to work with the tiger was an incredible privilege for me. Some of the greatest years of my life there. Yeah, well, you said that,
0: the greatest years of your life, and they're the most magnificent creatures, of course, having the privilege of actually see them. But there's something, I don't know, there's something magical about a tiger, isn't it? I yeah. mean,
1: it's, is, it the, it's, is it the apex cat? Yeah, I think it's the beauty, yeah. the power. Um, I've, I've seen people mesmerized. Yeah. And I probably was mesmerised myself for for 18 years. Yeah. And Just tell me, again.
0: has has Tiger Canyons achieved what you set out? Is there a population that you can actually restore into it's, the world? It's work in progress. It's work in
1: progress. It needs more land. Um, and so if we could find an investor to expand the land greatly, um. That would, be, that would be very very good
0: but there is potential to grow the thing
1: uh, the, 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 the foundation has been set and that has been very very successful and it's got a following today I made a film called um, Living with Tigers uh, still the 4th highest rated film ever made on Discovery I made another TV series called Tigers in Africa very very successful I've got a couple of books coming out I made a book with Alex Kirisho called um, Celebrating Tigers, which is a, a beautiful coffee table book. Yeah, and I created a lot of jobs there. Yeah. Uh, we we're one of the biggest employers, and that's an area where unemployment's about 65% of the people don't have a job there. So, yes, it's been a very big success. Talking of But fi-
0: it's work in progress. Talking of your filmmaking, of course, you're perhaps best known as a wildlife filmmaker, producing over 30-odd 30, 30 documentaries, several films. You've appeared in a film with Brooke Shields, I learnt earlier, which is quite a claim to fame. Where did this passion for filming come about? How did it come about, and when did it start? Because you use it in a very constructive way, don't you?
1: Yeah, I... I um I was given a camera as payment for a job that I did Um, and I started filming and realized that filming suited my temperament because driving tourists every day uh, the the questions tend to be very repetitive so uh, I understood that um, you know now I could stay in the bush the whole day didn't have to come back for breakfast and uh, you know, the camera didn't want Coca-Cola and didn't ask me any questions. So it was, it was suited my lifestyle, to be quite honest. And I shot thousands of feet of film. And then I hooked up with a guy called Duncan uh, McLaughlin, And he said to me, um, I was completely untrained. He said to me, where's your cutaways? I didn't even know what a cutaway was, <laughs> and he's the one who said, listen, I'll tell you how to make this film, G- sit, go in front of the camera and tell, it, tell your story. So myself and the tracker, Elmon and Klongo, both went in front of the camera, and it won the gold at New York, in the New York Film Festival, uh, and it was, in the words of Clark Bunting, who was head of Discovery at that time, it was the catalyst to create Animal Planet. They created Animal Planet on the back of Silent Hunter. Wow.
0: Yeah. So the film Silent Hunter was quite significant. You were, you were following a particular leopard. One
1: leopard. We had one leopard and she had 19 cubs. Wow. And I filmed many of those cubs from birth to death. Yeah. That's amazing.
0: Well, you've had some really life-changing encounters with these animals that you filmed. Can you tell us about a few? Particularly, there was one obviously famous incident when it almost cost you your life.
1: Yeah, the 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 first life-changing experience that I had was I went to Kenya on a forged Paraguayan passport and I stayed with George Adamson, the legendary George Adamson, the lion man that had made the film Born Free. And one day um, we were tracking, so he was rehabbing lions into the wilds and these lions were linking up with the wild lions and one day we picked up the tracks, and we, we went to the Tana River, and we found this pride of lions lying on the side of the Tana River. And the some of the lions were completely wild, and some were lions that he'd rib, rehab rehab but they were wild too. And he got out of the car. He had his hip flask on his on his belt, and he got out. He sat next to a tree, and he lit his pipe. And to be quite honest, I was petrified. I was absolutely petrified. And he looked up at me, I'll never forget. He had these big bushy eyebrows. And he said, "Varti, why don't you join me down here? And I got out of the car and I sat facing these lions. And we were there for about three hours. And it changed my life. Because from that moment on, I said, I'm, I'm going to work with big cats. And strangely enough, jo- one of George's biggest ambitions was to work work with the tiger and he never did that and I achieved that and When I started my tiger project every day, I would think of George And uh, at at one stage, I always almost wanted to call my tiger project the George Adamson Tiger Project But that was a defining moment Another defining moment was uh, I was making a film for Nat Geo Nat Geo Wild and They wanted to get to film live the birth of a tiger cup Um, so you would be sitting in your living room in Washington or New York and you would watch live a birth on on television it was very ambitious Um, and I had the the female that I had hand raised Julie, who I still could sit with uh, I knew the day that she'd mated I had three days when she'd mated with a male so I knew the exact time And I brought in a vet to scan her, and there were three fetuses, all pulsing, they were all viable. And in the boma, in the enclosure next to us, was a tiger that i had saved in the floods. He'd nearly been killed by another male tiger, and that male was called Corbett, very, very aggressive. And I warned the crew, I said, nobody go near the gate, don't go near the fence, stay away, stay, stay close to me. And when we left, after scanning Julie, Tigress Julie, I had to close her gate. And in order to close that gate, I had to open Corb- Corbett's gate just an inch. And I looked for him, and then I saw him up on a, on a hill. But in fact, it wasn't him. He was in the grass about 12 meters behind me. And I closed the gate, and as I stepped away, he punched through. He went through the 8,000 volts, and he hooked me on the, on the hip here. And I spun back, and I hit the steel gate. I hit the bars of the gate, the frame, and I collapsed unconscious. And then he reached through the wire. He'd made a big hole, and he, and he turned me over first. And then he grabbed me by the neck, and he started to pull me in to the boma. And then Julie Brown, um, the assistant to the producer, came running to help me. She's a big athletic girl, and she grabbed my leg. But she's up against a 235 kilogram tiger, so he's just pulling me in. I'm unconscious. Then Julianne Reed came, the producer, and she tried to get the gun out of my holster, but it was trapped against the ground. She couldn't get the gun out. Her her idea was to shoot the tiger in the head was quite a good idea. And then Pumlanyam Chunu, the assistant cameraman, he realized that he would need need some kind of weapon. And in the back of my Jeep, he found a one-meter wooden pole. And he grabbed that pole and he hit the tiger three times. And he hit him on the bridge of the nose, which is exactly the right place to hit him. And on the third strike, the tiger dropped me. And I must have regained consciousness because I heard him. I heard him shout, Run, JV, run. And I got up, but uh, he'd, he'd broken four of my ribs. He'd cracked my spine. So I was running in a very crouched kind of run. And I could see the Jeep, and the door was, was standing open. And all I could think is he's going to come and take me from behind. But he never did. He stayed in the boma. And I dived into that Jeep. And I was lying on the floor, and I remember the blood coming out like a dam. And I realized you know, I'm losing too much blood. So I told the driver then, I said, get hold of John Bassey, He's a friend of mine. He's got a helicopter at Bloemfontein. Tell him to come fast. And he got the message. John got the message. He went to his helicopter, and a massive storm broke out. And he couldn't get the, he couldn't get the helicopter into the air. So he ordered two, two ambulances and they both got lost so 12 o'clock at night i finally got to mediclinic blomfontein and there were three doctors there one was a friend of mine and they did a seven and a half hour operation and they phoned jill and they said to jill bring the kids but he's got no chance he's never going to make it Uh, but come anyway and i woke up at five in the morning and they did a seven and a half hour operation and I'll never forget the anaesthetist, was, was sitting on the ground. He was drenched with sweat. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know how you made it, man. He said, I gave, you, I gave you way over the limit of steroids to keep you alive. He said, I didn't think, he said, four times you were nearly gone. And I just pumped the steroids. And he says, I'm so happy to see you.
0: Well, your your book's called Nine Lives, and that was clearly, I would say, two or three of them. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible story, John. Can, yeah. I, can I ask one? what happened to Corbett the tiger?
1: So Corbett, then after that he was released, he became a territorial male, he fathered some cubs, um, and then he became a serial killer after that. Um, he just started killing every tiger, you know, females, males, and then started to jump over the three-meter fence so we couldn't hold him any longer so you'd given him enough chance and anyway. he so was clearly a to, problem animal it was it was either him or the project yeah know? so I eventually had to euthanize him yeah well what a story I'm sure everybody
0: yeah. listening to this was absolutely gripped I mean how you got through that but the fact that you not only survived but it inspired you to carry on
1: yeah I could have quit there um, I never any thought of carrying on um, yeah, yeah I've, been, I've been very blessed. Uh, I've been in a helicopter crash. I uh, had a fantastic pilot there. I uh, had a heart attack and then uh, the, the ambulance ran out of oxygen and they found another canister of oxygen. I've had malaria 14 times. I've had skin cancer. Uh, so I've had a string of... And every time I've had good luck. I so. tell
0: you, what, nine lives. You've had more than nine lives, and I think uh, <laughs> we're all we're all benefiting from the fact you're still around. Um, to, uh, let's talk about the future because the past is wonderful, of course, but the future's probably more important. What are your hopes for the future in terms of conservation? Here in the Eastern Cape, we have some encouraging plans for conservation and rewilding. Um, We've spoken about the the history of conservation, especially in South Africa. It's it's been mainly driven by the private sector, which you're part of. Um, We've talked about how the value of land has gone up um, from commercial farming, use of commercial farming to to rewilding and wildlife and tourism, etc. But do you think we're on the right track and uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the planet, we've gone too far but uh, are you one of these optimistic people to say we can turn the corner and
1: are we on the right track, here specifically in South Africa? Yeah, no, I, I am op- optimistic. Um, the first thing with South Africa is um, we have to have a change of government. The present government is taking us into a, a very, very dark place and we have to change that. I've I been working with some of the opposition leaders and I'm, I'm, I'm overjoyed to hear them say that they are going to form this coalition, this multi-party um, with the DA, and, and hopefully they can knock the government out. Um, if that happens, uh, then You know, we get rid of this idea that you can just march in and take land away from people and not pay them. uh, You know, that kind of revolution is going to take you nowhere. You know, if you want to sell the land, it's a willing buyer, willing seller. And, you you know, a place like the Karoo, you could take five million people and put them in the Karoo and, and 10 years later, you've got a desert. You know, it's it's one thing to own the land. It's another thing to look after the land and make it productive. So, if that can happen, if we can get a solid, stable government, then places like this—I'm sitting here and I'm looking across here—that were once sheep farms and cattle farms, and today it's teeming with wildlife. Now, that is the future. You take a place like Lonelosi Game Reserve. We take 64 guests in five different camps, and we employ. 260 people and uh, we feed a thousand people a day and and we have five schools that are teaching everything from welding to tracking to chefs to you name it Um, you know, education through high tech Um, I've got a project in the Karoo which could create 50,000 jobs 50,000, you know with a ripple effect of five so um, You know, one thing that Africa's got that the rest of the world uh, do not have is, is, is lions and elephants and leopards and cheetahs and buffalo and that kind of thing. The African continent still is rich in wildlife, okay? Its problem, like the planet, is that by 2050, this planet is trying to support 10 billion people. It cannot do that. It cannot do that. In order for this planet to support even 5 billion people, there has to be a change in mindset. So, I'm building a museum at the moment. And that museum um, gets into the future. Vertical agriculture, the way we grow our food, um, the the partnerships with the planet, electrical motor cars. and, And that's, you know, human beings are incredibly creative. We've flown to the moon, um, you know, I can pick up the cell phone and talk to somebody in New York City. I could talk to my kid who's surfing in Sri Lanka. You know, we, we, we're, we're a clever, clever primate, you know. We're a clever super ape, there's no doubt about it. But we have to, we have to change the method in which we live. And we have to repartnership with the land. And we need to rewild vast areas that have been destroyed by the wrong kinds of agriculture. We've got to rewild those areas. And there's got to be a new way, a new way of moving forward. Um, And we've got to reduce the human population as well.
0: Yeah. Well, I hope that people listen to your message. And as long as, as I said, people like yourself who have um, not only uh, talked the talk, but certainly walked the walk can remind us of, of of the privilege we do have living on this wonderful planet, especially here in South Africa. Thanks for your time today, John.
1: Thank you so much. That was Frontierland with Dr.
0: Dean Allen. For more podcasts, visit algoafm.co.za.